The Washington Post issues a correction on its uh, recent reporting about Trump's dangerous phone call with election members down in Georgia. So we'll talk a bit about what happened there and some of the backlash to that. In other news, the Chauvin trial may get delayed at this point because the settlement may have tainted the jury pool. So we'll talk just a bit about that. Only 35% of New Yorkers think that Cuomo is a scumbag, which he is. So we'll talk a little bit about what happened there. And an old brand may be coming back from bankruptcy with new owners. So we'll see what's going on with that. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Contemporary. My name is Jay Edgar. We've got some stuff to get to today. It was another slow news Monday, though, so I'm preparing to see what we have for Onslaught coming in on the next couple days, but we will see what happens with that. But before we get started, make sure you head on over and check out my friends who transmit on the Freedom Scoop Media Group Network. We have great shows such as The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, The Freckles and Brit Show, and The R-Rated Conservative. Bookmark the page. We are still under construction right now. But as announced on the Red Net Show last night, I will be doing a 24-hour live stream on April 17th for suicide awareness and prevention. So make sure you guys come here back here for that. Hang out with me for at least a little while throughout the day. We've got some guests already lined up. We're kind of working out the details of what everybody's going to do. I'm going to try and get a debate up again because I want to see that. I don't want to participate in it, but I do want to see what happens with the debate. So definitely something to look forward to on that. We'll see what we can get set up and go from there. But uh, Head on over there or check that out. That's going to be great. And also bookmark the page. We will be premiering the new website, the brand new website on that live stream. So definitely looking forward to that. Definitely looking forward to see you guys all there. It's going to be great. Um, looking back onto the stocks here for the day. Looks like everything reset, but the Dow got hammered in the beginning of the day. About midday, it just dropped like a stone and then still slowly climbed back up and had a rocket moment right at the end of the day. It wound up being a half a percent up from the end of the day, but it looks like the futures are going to point downwards on this here. So we're going to see what's happening for this. I might be just a little bit low energy today, but hopefully the coffee will do something for like uh, for that. The, uh, the time change is still kicking my ass a little bit here, but the news stops for nobody, so we can't let a little thing like a little bit of lack of sleep get into the way of doing anything else here. So we got to power through anyway. Looking at the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin right now is at 55,123 US dollars and 20 US cents. Still talking about the idea of becoming illegal in some countries. Not this country, though. I know that they tried. I know they talked about it, but it is uh, talked about being criminalized in places like India and Southeast Asia. So that's going to take a really, really hard hit on the market, and we'll see what happens with that. As far as the gas goes... The Costco in Sun Prairie is up to 249, has moved off its 245 point, and everybody else seems to be moving up slightly as well. We haven't seen the 260 yet in Madison, but it sure as hell is 260 down here, so we'll see what happens there. 255 seems to be the norm everywhere else throughout the Madison metro. And we'll talk a little bit about one of the possible factors that's going along with that, uh, that over in Syria. 
later on in the program here. Moving in, reading from IBD. Dow Jones Futures. Fall as Bitcoin slides from record highs, this EV leader surges again. From Scott Latonin. Dow Jones futures were lower while S&P 500 futures and NASDAQ 100 futures traded higher early Tuesday. As Bitcoin slid from record highs, Tesla stock and Apple jumped while EV leader Volkswagen surged to new highs on Monday. On Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced a half a percent. The S&P 500 rose 0.6 percent, uh, and the tech-heavy NASDAQ composite outperformed, rising more than 1 percent. Among the Dow leaders, Apple rallied over 2% on Monday, while Microsoft moved down 0.4% in today's stock market. Nike is approaching a new buy point. Tesla raced over 2% higher on Monday. EV leader Volkswagen surged 7.2% to hit a new high. After the close, Monday, Health Equity reported its quarterly earnings results. Among the top stocks to watch, Applied Materials, Discover Financial, and Haines Celestial are in or near buy zones in the new stock market rally. I wouldn't call this a rally. A half a percent here and there, I wouldn't call that a rally. Slow and steady is the most that I would call that, but we'll see what happens with that. Microsoft and Tesla are IBD leaderboard stocks. Applied Material was Monday's IBD stock of the day. While Discover Financial and Haines Celestial were featured in this week's Stocks Near a Buy Zone column, Westlake was Monday's IBD stock of the day on the futures. Ahead of the open on Tuesday, Dow Jones uh, futures edged lower versus fair value, while S&P 500 futures rose a fraction of a percent. NASDAQ 100 futures gained 0.6% versus fair value. Remember that trading in Dow futures and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. So that's what we're seeing from there. Let's see what MarketWatch has to say. And my God, I do need to start sleeping more here because if I trip over my words any harder, people are going to start calling me Beijing Biden. From MarketWatch, Dow futures edge lower ahead of economic data as the Fed begins two-day meeting. From William Watts. Stock index futures were mixed early Tuesday as investors awaited U.S. February retail sales figures and other economic data ahead of the start of a two-day Federal Reserve Policy meeting. Futures on the Dow Jones Industrial Average were down 24 points or 0.1% at 32,826. S&P 500 futures edged up 3.3 points or 0.1% to 396150. NASDAQ 100 futures were up 72.25 points or 0.6% at 131150. On Monday, stocks ended on a positive note after flipping between modest gains and losses, with the Dow logging a fourth straight record close, its longest streak since December 2017, according to Dow Jones market data. The S&P 500 also closed at a record, rising 0.6%, while the NASDAQ composite advanced 1%. Stocks continue to press higher on expectations of vaccine rollouts and other $1.9 trillion dose of COVID-19 relief spending by the U.S. government will fuel an acceleration in economic growth and corporate profits in 2021. There it is right there, just like I said. Even MarketWatch is telling you that this is going to do nothing but make the rich richer, and corporate profits are going to go up. 
the accelerated pace of vaccinations in America in the imminent spending boom seem to have reawakened a thirst for risk-taking among investors who are front-running what will probably be a stellar summer in economic data, said Mario's Haji Kirayokos. I think that's how that gets pronounced. Investment analyst at XM, a Tuesday note. Even the risk of a more hawkish Fed tomorrow appears to have been discounted by market participants, he said, since traders have already priced in an earlier timeline for rate increases. Even if policymakers bring forward their rate forecast to signal a hike in 2023 through the famous dot plot, that would still be aligned with the market pricing and therefore not much of a shock. The tech-heavy Nasdaq appeared to set to outperform as Treasury yields slipped. The recent backup in yields, which saw the rate on the 10-year note rise for six straight weeks, had weighed on the index as it sparked rotation away from the most high-flying stocks of the pandemic toward more cyclically sensitive stocks expected to gain from wider economic reopening. The Fed's two-day meeting was set to get underway Tuesday morning. When it concludes Wednesday, investors expect no changes in policy, but will be eager to see updated projections on the economic outlook and the path for interest rates, while Chairman Jerome Powell's news conference promises to be the key economic event of the week. So that's what we're seeing up on the markets here. They're going to try and jack the rates here and try and curb the inflation at some point here, but I'm pretty sure that's going to take the market with it. Just looking at what I see from this and looking at what I, what I have seen in the past, in the past year, looking at what happens with this. Like I said, I've been reading these articles for a year at this point, so. But we'll see what happens. It may be absolutely nothing, and we may see record economy under Biden. He can do it. He can do the best. I doubt that. If anything, it'll be a slow growth. That's my prediction. But, once again, I have no crystal ball, so I can't tell you what is actually going to happen. All right, reading here now from the Washington Post. Trump pressured a Georgia elections investigator in a separate call legal experts say could amount to obstruction. From A.B. Gardner. Correction. Two months after publication of this story, the Georgia Secretary of State released an audio recording of President Donald Trump's December phone call with the state's top election investigator. That recording revealed that the Post misquoted Trump's comments on the call based on information provided by a source. Trump did not tell the investigator to find the fraud or say that she wouldn't be an, or she would be rather a national hero if she did so. Instead, Trump argued or urged rather the investigator to scrutinize ballots in Fulton County, Georgia, asserting that she would find dishonesty there. He also told her that she had the most important job in the country right now. A story about the recording can be found here. The headline and text of the story have been corrected to remove quotes misattributed to Trump. And this is, this is the same article that we read all the way back in December on this. And there is your correction right there. The Georgia Secretary of State released an audio recording of President Trump's December phone call with the state's top elections investigator, which is weird. Because I listened to the full phone call all the way back in December. So it's not that it just got released now. It's the fact that the news media is first talking about the fact that it's released and the correction is out there. The information was always there, folks. It was always there. It was a one-hour phone call, and what did I tell you at the time? If you listen to the whole phone call, 
It wasn't the fact that Trump came out and said, go and find the votes. Go and find the votes. It was the fact that he said, there's dishonesty there, and I'm sure that you'll find that I won by the county by a lot, okay? So, here's the Washington Post coming out and telling you the truth two months later, after the inauguration, after everything is done. Otherwise, yeah, this is the same article that we read at the time. Uh, looking in at the blaze. Washington Post blasted after admitting Trump never said buying the Fred to Georgia elections investigators as it reported in the bombshell story. From Dave Urbanski. The Washington Post is getting hammered on social media over its recent correction, admitting former President Donald Trump never urged Georgia elections investigator to find the fraud in a phone call over general election ballot impropriety uh, allegations in the state. The Post placed the following correction above its story, originally published in early January. And we read that already. The Wall Street Journal reported last week on the audio of December 23rd call between Trump and investigator Francis Watson, noting that the Post reported on the call in January, but that this was the first time he uh, the recording had been released. Bullshit! I told you guys. I told you guys. And a lot of other people did. Poole was out here talking about it. I talked about it. Shapiro talked about it. A lot of people talked about this at the time. But now, hey, the mainstream media is going to catch up and talk about this. The Post, in its story about the recording, said Georgia officials indicated they didn't believe a recording existed. But the Post said officials found the recording in a trash folder on Watson's device while responding to a public records request, and that tidbit came courtesy of a person familiar with the situation who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the internal process. Alex Thompson, Politico's White House reporter, characterized the Post errors as real bad and noted that this quote was and still is everywhere. Thompson added that CNN issued a sort of vague editor's note. The WAPO correction was much more comprehensive. The Daily Beast acknowledged that the Post quietly corrected the story, while a number of other media watchers were taken aback, to put it mildly, by the Post getting such crucial details wrong. Which, once again, everybody told you. Everybody in alternative media told you that this call was not the four-minute recording that the Washington Post put out. That was common knowledge by the next day. And the best part of this, of course, is the fact that this was supposed to be the impeachment trial. That's what they were going to try and impeach over, was this phone call. Well, not that, the, the four-minute release that they put out. And they would have got their asses hammered on that, too. Because this full call existed. All Trump's lawyers would have had to do, if this would have been the basis of the impeachment, was go look at any alternative or mollusk media platform, any missing link platform, that had the full version of the call out there. And it wasn't even that hard to find, either. That's the worst part of it. It took me two minutes on Google to find the full call in January, when they were talking about this. Two minutes on Google to find the full hour call. And then I listened to it 
on my tablet while I cleaned my apartment for an hour. But nope, this is the narrative right now. Hey, no, he pressured them. He's pressuring. He's putting, this is what dictators do. And it's funny that nobody's hearing a word about this instead of just, oh, oopsie, oh, the call was bad, the call was, oh. We told you the wrong thing, just don't worry about that. Hail Biden. So that's what we see from that. All right, we got a bunch of other stuff to get to with this, though. Uh, let's talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Guam because that was a story that happened, and we talked a little bit about that last night and yesterday morning as well, but, uh, well, here's some video for you guys. Congressman San Nicholas escorted the Guam National Guard to pay a visit to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's nothing creepy about this at all. So I would assume she'll be back in about 15, 20 minutes. Okay. And if you guys want to circle back. Yeah. Do you know how long she'll be back here after when she returns? Because we are also making some deliveries to leadership and capital. So I can't I can't speak to that. I think we're about to start the new round of votes. I'm right. not okay. We're about to start the new round of votes. Dude, this is horrifying. Um, can we just text your scheduler or email your scheduler? Just you can to, text me. Can you give me your number? Yeah. Give me my card or whatever. I also have my, my Guam guardsmen that are out here on the deployment. They wanted to come over and say hello to you. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry that you guys missed. She's literally in an interview. She's coming back to the hill. But we'd love to um, allow you guys to see her. Yeah, I think it'll be really great. Absolutely. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming by. Where is y'all's office? We are actually in the same building. Sixth oh, floor. Yeah. Sixth floor. Yeah. Okay. 1632. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I'm sorry, your name again? Taylor. Taylor, you want to come on and say hi? Just to, sure, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So guys, um, Congressman Green will be probably coming back in 20 minutes. We'll probably hey, circle you? back. This is Taylor, her uh, legislative director. So you just want to come on and say hi. Hi, hi guys. Hey. Hey. Thank you guys so much for all that you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for keeping us safe. Um, the Congresswoman should be back hopefully in the next 30 minutes or so, and I know that she would love to meet all of you and say hi and just tell you how much she appreciates the hard work that you guys Yeah, that's not creepy at all. Having a bunch of uniformed military members go up and essentially storm a congresswoman's office. That doesn't raise any red flags. And that's uh, Sir, uh, Sire Elf, rather, right on the top here, says this doesn't set off alarms. Nope, nope. Uh, Cernovich says there's substantial 
reason to believe San Nicolas converted campaign funds to personal use, accepted excessive campaign contributions, and disclosed false information in his campaign paperwork that had nothing to do with any of this, but yeah, ex wow. All right, let's read on to see what goes on with this. Uh, from the New York Post, Guam National Guard members visit Marjorie Taylor Greene's office after CPAC gaffe. From Kenneth Garger. Members of the Guam National Guard on Monday marched to the Capitol office of Repre uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene after she falsely claimed last month the U.S. territory is foreign country. Led by Guam's only congressional delegate, Michael F.Q. San Nicolas, the group briefly met with one of Greene's aides, who said the congresswoman was not at her office. Thank you guys so much for what you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for keeping us safe, the aide said, according to the video of the meeting posted to Twitter by The Hill. Last month, Green drew criticism when she erroneously asserted that the uh, conservative political action conference that Guam is a foreign land. <clears throat> I'm a regular person, and I wanted to take my regular person, normal, everyday American values, which is, we love our country. We believe our hard-earned tax dollars should go to America, not for what? China, Russia, the Middle East, Guam, wherever, wherever, she said, according to Business Insider. And it was an honest mistake. It really was. Hell, I didn't know Guam was a territory of the U.S. until Trump was in office. Because most people didn't pay attention to it at the time. I'm sure a lot of other people learned that during these last four years and tenure. And I think anybody who tells you otherwise is probably lying to you. There's probably a handful of people that did know that Guam was a territory, but I don't think that it was as common knowledge as they're trying to put this off to be. I really don't. Now, if you're a congressperson, yes, you should probably know what all the U.S. territories are, but, you know, first-term congressperson, and everybody makes a mistake, too. And to have a platoon of uniformed people come in and storm your office, and nobody's saying a word about this, considering the fact that we saw all the panic over the January 6th thing, yeah, no, I'm not buying any of this shit. So, that's what we see from that. Let's see, what does the AP have to say today? Immigrant teens to be housed at Dallas Convention Center. From Noman Merchant and Jake Bleiberg. The U.S. government plans to house up to 3,000 immigrant teenagers at a convention center in downtown Dallas as it struggles to find space for a surge of migrant children at the border who have strained the immigration system just two months into the Biden administration. American authorities encountered people crossing the border without legal status more than 100,000 times in February, a level higher than all but four months of Donald Trump's presidency. The spike in traffic poses a challenge to President Joe Biden at a fraught moment with Congress, which is about to take up immigration legislation and has required the help of the American Red Cross. The K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center will be used for up to 90 days, beginning as earlier this week, according to a memo obtained by the AP that was sent Monday to members of the Dallas City Council. Federal agencies will use the facility to house boys, uh, boys rather, ages 15 to 17, according to the memo, which describes the soon-to-open site as a decompression center. Those of you from the South, hopefully we've got uh, Seawall in here and maybe Ron Helton as well, help me out with my geography here because I was to the understanding that Dallas is quite a distance 
away from the border. That seems like hundreds and hundreds of miles to go from the border to Dallas. So I isn't there a convention center any closer? I would think there'd be a convention center closer to the border. El Paso, San Antonio, something like that. That seems counterproductive and a lot of fuel to transport and house these people. The Health and Human Services Department is rushing to open facilities across the country to house immigrant children who are otherwise being held by the Border Patrol, which is generally supposed to detain children for no more than three days. The Border Patrol is holding children longer because there's next to no space in the HHS system, similar to the last major increase in migration two years ago. A tent facility operated by the Border Patrol in Donna, some 500 miles south of Dallas, is holding more than 1,000 uh, children and teenagers, some as young as four. Lawyers who inspect immigration detention facilities under a court settlement say they interviewed children who reported being held in packed conditions in the tent, with some sleeping on the floor and others not being able to shower for five days. Oh, I bet that smells fantastic. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Saturday directed the Federal Emergency Management Agency to help manage and care for children crossing the border. I'm incredibly proud of the agents of the Border Patrol who've been working around the clock in difficult circumstances to take care of children temporarily in our care, Mayorkas said in a statement. Yet, as I have said many times, a Border uh, Patrol facility is no place for a child. And we'll talk about Jen Psaki in a moment here. But that, that, that bothers me just a little bit here because we've got a lot of resources to get to Dallas. I mean, what did they say? The tent city in Donna is 500 miles away from Dallas? 500 miles south of Dallas, which means you're already transporting people at best seven to eight hours to get to this facility. And I understand Texas is a big place and there's a lot of open area in Texas. I do understand that. I have been to the American Southwest before. I've never been to Texas. Well, I have been to Texas once. But I've been to Arizona and even up towards Utah, that area. And I've seen what kind of open space there is in the American Southwest. But I also know that there are large, verifiable cities further south in Texas than Dallas. So I don't know why it is that they chose this particular one, but that just that seems like a drain on resources to go to that one. Not to mention the fact that, yes, we've got to figure out what's drawing these people in to get pushed through a system like this. All right, let's see what the Daily Wire has to say. Saki on reports by an admin keeping kids on floors hungry with no sun. It's Trump's fault. This will be interesting. From Ryan Saavedra. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki blamed the uh, allegedly appalling treatment of migrant children in President Joe Biden's southern border detention facilities on former President Donald Trump as the rapidly escalating border crisis, which experts say, or have said rather, is President Joe Biden's fault, continued to spiral out of control. Let's see if there's video. Interviews. 
some children that were in facilities. The children described sleeping on the floor, being hungry, not being not seeing the sun for days. How is that acceptable for the Biden administration to keep children in those sorts of conditions, given the fact that you said you you were an administration that was going to be more humane than the previous one? Well, these. Let me first say this is. Um, Heartbreaking. Uh, it's a very emotional issue for a lot of people, um, and it's very difficult and challenging. And obviously, these TBP facilities are not made for kids. So one of the reasons, uh, or a driving reason, why uh, the president has pushed to take all of the actions that I outlined earlier when Phil asked the question is because we want to expedite getting these kids out of these CBP facilities as quickly as possible. And that's our goal and our objective, and into shelters as quickly as possible, then into sponsored homes while their cases are being considered and adjudicated. Uh, we are trying to work through what was a dismantled and unprepared system because of the, the, the role of the last administration. It's going to take some time, but we are very clear-eyed about what the problems are and very focused on uh, putting forward solutions. And I understand the idea of these facilities not being designed by children, but children being hungry, sleeping on the floor, not being allowed outside for days at a time. Why is that acceptable to go on even for one more day? Why is that something that's not being outlawed right now? How is the administration not stopping that today? Well, Yamisha, it's not acceptable. But I think the challenge here is that there are only there are not that many options. So the options are, and we have a lot of critics, but many of them are not putting forward a lot of solutions. The options here are send the kids back on the journey, send them to unvetted homes, or work to expedite moving them into shelters where they can get uh, health uh, treatment by medical doctors, by, uh, by educational resources, legal counseling, mental health counseling. That's exactly what we're focused on doing. And this is an across the administration effort that we are committed from the top to making changes on as quickly as possible. There you have it. It is all Trump's fault. Because why wouldn't it be? Why would it be anything other than Trump's fault? I mean, Biden could have done this. And I do, I do understand some of what she is saying with that because this is a brand new administration this is all brand new stuff that's coming into them and they've only been at it for a couple months i do understand and respect that however and this is where this becomes important we do look at the fact that during the debates and during the campaign the promise was that america was going to be open for immigrants and even after they came in after they got inaugurated into office it was also the promise that this was going to be open, the country was going to be open for immigrants. We weren't going to do the same barbaric things that the Trump administration did. So, and as soon as it looked like they were going to win, the next caravan started coming up and it was huge and more and more people started coming for the border. There is that to deal with. There definitely is that we have to look at and think about when we do something like this. And furthermore, we also have to look back and remember the fact that if this had happen if you reverse the parties. The media and the press secretary, well, no, the press secretary wouldn't be because uh, she'd be a member of the same party, the same White House, but the media would not be as kind to Kaylee McEnany over this simply because if this caravan had hit the day after Trump was inaugurated, and it was his first term, not the second term, because the second term would have already had his policy in place. But if this caravan had hit, and these problems would have been happening happening on January 21st of like 2016, then the media would be crucifying Trump for what 
was happening at the border. And yet they can let Saki get away with saying, oh, well, just it's been two months. It's the previous guy's fault. <clears throat> so that's what we're getting off of that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about my neck of the woods here. Uh, from CNN, Derek Chauvin's defense asked to delay and move trial in light of Minneapolis settlement with George Floyd's family. From Aaron Cooper and Eric Levinson. Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, was uh, asked the court on Monday to delay Chauvin's criminal trial and move the venue in the wake of the $27 million civil settlement between Minneapolis and George Floyd's family. In a hearing Monday, Nelson said he's gravely concerned by the announcement, calling it incredibly prejudicial. It's amazing to me. They had a press conference on Friday where the mayor of Minneapolis is on stage with the city council, and they're using very, what would I say, very well-designed terminology. The unanimous decision of the city council, for example, it just goes straight to the heart of the dangers of pretrial publicity in this case, Nelson said. Nelson said the court should strongly consider their request to delay the trial and move it outside of Hennepin County. He asked for extra peremptory strikes and re-questioning of the jurors who had been selected. The fact that this came in the exact middle of jury selection is perplexing to me, Your Honor. Whose idea it was to release this information when it was released, he said. The request came as the second week of the jury selection got underway in the trial of Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer accused of killing George Floyd on May 25th of 2020. Floyd's final moments recorded on video led to widespread protests against police brutality and racism under the Black Lives Matter banner, as well as incidents of unrest and looting. Chauvin has pleaded not guilty to second-degree unintentional murder and second-degree manslaughter charges. He has also pleaded not guilty to third-degree murder, a charge reinstated in the case this week. Jury selection in the case began on March 9th, and seven jurors have been seated in the case during the first week. Fourteen total jurors are needed, including two alternates. They actually might be right on this one. So the citation that they're coming forward with when they talk about moving this trial is uh, jury, uh, jury poisoning. Because the information that came out from the press conference is widely public. During the Kami coup, it's almost impossible to keep someone's eyes away from what's going on in the news because they're going home instead of staying in the jury box through all this. So, yeah, they're going home and they're seeing the fact that, oh, hey, yeah, oh, the city just gave away $27 million in wrongful death settlement to this family. Huh. Well, hey, maybe I got to vote a certain way on this jury then. And really, honestly, the timing of this is, that's super sus to me, the timing of all this. Because if I look at something like this, I think I would have waited to find out what what happened in the trial before I decided what was a wrongful death and what wasn't. Because with what the medical examiner is probably going to come out with, what Chauvin's lawyers are going to come out with, showing the fact that George Floyd had enough drugs in his system to kill a small African elephant. Where's the wrongful death at that point? This whole thing seems a little bit preemptive, and yeah, if the city's coming out and saying, oh, well, we just already paid out $27 million in wrongful death. Oh, hmm, I'm a juror, and my city just paid out this much money in wrongful death settlement. I guess it must be a wrongful death. The city must feel responsible, so I've got to vote with 
the way the city said. So definitely something to watch for this um, at this point. There are still three jurors, five jurors rather, because they need to have 14, two alternates. There are still five jurors to be seated, and we've already been going through this for a week. So this is definitely going to be a difficult one to see. All right, let's see. From WBNS10 CBS out of Columbus, Ohio. Judge considers a delay in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Five jurors still needed. From Diane Sandberg. One of the largest settlements in U.S. history paid to the family of George Floyd after his May 2020 death in police custody has become another legal sticking point in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. On March 12th, the Minneapolis City Council publicly announced that $27 million in settlement. And on Monday, Chauvin's defense team told Judge Peter Cahill they're gravely concerned about the potential of that news to prejudice the seven jurors already seated and the potential to affect the feelings of the seven still needed for trial. So this is before they picked two, uh, two more. Defense attorney Eric Nelson said Monday that in a pretrial hearing that the news has very suspicious timing, to say the least, and has an incredible propensity to taint a jury pool. He pointed out to Judge Cahill that the judge has told the seven jurors seated already that they should avoid the news about the case, but they are allowed to scroll through social media. I think there are things that the court must do, which includes calling back the seven jurors that are already seated, asking them about the settlement, Nelson added. On Monday, Nelson also requested a continuance of the trial and a renewal of the charges of the venue motion. Sorry, the change of venue motion. The judge allowed the prosecution to respond to Nelson on this matter, and the prosecutor, Steve Schleier, argued that the jury pool has already been exposed to other news about the case, and they're selecting only people who can set that aside. Judge Cahill said the defense team, and even the prosecution, should have a legitimate concern about the impact and that there's been other prejudicial pretrial publicity aside from this. He acknowledged that the city's timing was unfortunate and also said he doesn't sense any evil intent. The judge said he will move forward for now, but he's taking the motion for a continuance under advisement. He denied the defense's request for extra peremptory strikes that they could use to dismiss more jurors without cause, and he said eventually he will call back the seven jurors who were seated before the settlement to ask them what they know and if they can set it aside. So, the judge is actually... I'm a little bit surprised by this at this point, but uh, the judge is actually amiable to the idea of pushing this out. I don't know if he's amiable to the idea of pushing into a different district. I think that it should, at this point, be put into a different district, especially considering the fact that the autonomous zone is so close to the courthouse. They probably should be doing this somewhere else in Minnesota. They absolutely should. But we will see what happens with this and where this goes. Definitely something to watch and definitely something we're going to be talking about for a while. <clears throat> All right, let's read from The Hill. Woman arrested at Texas Bank after bucking business mask mandate. What are you going to do, arrest me? From Ayers Folly. A Texas woman was arrested last week after allegedly refusing to follow a bank's mask uh, policy and then refusing to leave the business. In police body camera footage, the woman, identified by CNN as 65-year-old Terry White, can be seen being placed in handcuffs by police inside of Bank of America branch in Galveston on Thursday. 
The video, which lasts for a little more than four minutes, starts shortly after the officer enters the bank and is pointed in the direction of White, who is standing in line and not wearing a mask. Though Texas lifted its statewide mask mandate last week, individual businesses can continue to enforce masking requirements. Ma'am, if, if they ask you to leave, you have to leave, the officer can be heard telling White off screen shortly after he approached her in line. My money's in this bank and I'm going to take it out, White tells the officer. Well, then you have to abide by the rules, he tells her, adding that businesses have the right to refuse service even if you're not wearing a mask. Let's watch a little bit of this. That's why I'm taking my money out, she continues. Awesome. Well, you need to go and get a mask and then take your money out. Businesses have the right to refuse service, even if you're not wearing a mask. That's their choice. Awesome. Well, you need to go and get a mask and then take your money out. You're not allowed to do. Ma'am, listen, we're going to do this the easy way or the hard way. What are you going to do? Arrest me? Yes, for intruding on premises. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And you believe in this? I believe in it. Do you believe in this? The laws, yes. The law says that I do not have to wear a mask. You can not in public, my but you're not in public. You're not in public. Yes, I'm not going to argue with you about place. this. This is not a public okay, place. I'm this is a private business. No, you're business. not. We're going to go outside. Are you serious? Do I look like I'm kidding? Well, I don't know because let's let's walk, go walk outside. You've got some issues. I've got issues that you're taking away okay. people's human rights. Okay. Let's Ooh, go outside. Let's go outside. Shoot me, people! Is no. going to shoot me for trying not to breathe? Cool. Come cool. on, Come on, dude. Don't. Re oh, don't do that. Oh no. Do not touch me. Who do you think you are? Point time. One oh, back up! Back up! Some old lady is getting handcuffed here. Ma'am, put you your hands behind you your back. Say, it. you don't stop resisting. Are stop. You, are you gonna? Is everybody gonna like get real here? Really? Relax. No one's gonna get real. Wow. Come on. Oh, you smashed my head to the ground now. Now you're smashing my arm into my private area. Your private area? Yeah. Put your hands behind your back. My hand is behind my back, sir. This one. Turn over on your stomach. Put your hand behind your back. Relax. I'm totally relaxed. No, you are not relaxed. Please not relaxed at all. Right here, people. No, no, it's not. Wow, what a bunch of sheep. Okay, I hope someone's filming this. You're hurting me. Oh, I'm filming it. This is like Yeah, this okay. Like Stand up. Stand up. Stand yourself up. And how do you suggest, sir? I am like a 65-year-old woman here. Okay. Sit what up. are you doing? Stand up. Ayúdame, por favor. Stand up. Ayúdame, por favor. 
Are you trying to speak Spanish to people? I do speak Spanish. Okay, well stand up. Are you happy now, lady? Okay. I'm, gonna, I'm not happy. You okay, you stand up. To stand up. I refuse to listen to this. Come on. You know what? I think She's getting yourself. Come on. I think you broke my freaking foot. Okay, I'll call. And that's my business over there. Yeah, she's going to pick it up. Come on. We're going outside. Oh. One in custody. Wow. Not wearing a mask, people. This is what they do to you. Slow everybody down. Okay, um, I've got my dog in my truck. I got you. I'm 10-4. Uh, send EMS for a 60-year-old white female. She's complaining of uh, foot pain. Yeah. You Take broke a seat. my damn foot. Take a seat. 49, we're out with Okay. Take a seat. Are you? Where's your mask? Where's your I'm mask? I'm six feet away from you. Oh, well, I was six feet away from those people All in right, there, too. All right, in there. Get inside. Come on, you guys. Get Let's inside. get real. Alright, um, I do have some things to say about this, and I'm sure that some people are going to be happy about it, some people are going to be upset about it, and I mean, the big first part of this, the first thing that really comes out of this for me is the fact that even if you are going to take your money out of the bank, which it sounds like, yes, she was pissed about the fact that Bank of America has continued to have its mask mandate. If you are going to do business, <clears throat> excuse me, with a private company like that, then you have to abide by their rules while you are on their premises. And the cop did point that out correctly. Um, as far as Bank of America calling the cops on a customer like that, well, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more people went and took their money back out of Bank of America because that, that's kind of shady. But the other side of that, and um, she is intruding on the premises. If you are not abiding by the private uh, company's rules, if you're not abiding by the rules of private property, which is what this was, then you are, you're trespassing at that point. Once they ask you to leave and you don't leave, you are criminally trespassing. However, as I mentioned right at the top of this, everybody who has money in Bank of America should strongly reconsider whether or not they want to keep their money in Bank of America at this point, because yes, they will not, they will allow this to happen to one of their customers over something so frivolous as a mask. So there is a ton of stuff to go over with this one here. All right, let's keep going. Uh, I've got one from F.A. For All Texas, uh, this is one that Elaine put out on Twitter, and I promised that I would give this to you guys to see if you guys are outraged over this. She said that people should be outraged, but I want to see what you guys think. Yay vote on ballot access reform rejected by subcommittee chair from Josh E. Last Wednesday, March 10th, the House Elections and Campaign Finance Subcommittee took up HB 609, sponsored by Rep. Bud Halsey. The bill sought to move Tennessee closer to free and equal elections per the state's constitution mandate. During the voice vote, the ayes prevailed in the majority, 4-3, to three, yet the legislation was still killed by the House subcommittee. Here's what happened. First, a background on why this legislation is important. 
In Tennessee, running as a Democrat, Republican, or Independent for any partisan office requires the candidate to collect 25 signatures from registered voters in the uh, candidate's district. However, to run statewide with any other party by your name, a C for Constitution Party, G for Green Party, or any other letters, you need 56,082, 2.5% of the votes cast in the governor's race in 2018. As of 2018, Tennessee had the third highest signature requirement behind Texas and California, the two most popular states. Representative Policies legislation does three things. <clears throat> it reduces the number of signatures needed from 56,000 to approximately 12,000. A half percent, it brings Tennessee more in line with the median requirements for minor parties across the country. It also makes it marginally easier for minor parties to retain ballot access in the future, reducing the requirement for access retention from 5% of the vote to 1%. Furthermore, it protects taxpayers from costly primaries by setting a 25% threshold for minor parties to trigger a state subsidy for mandatory primaries. During the subcommittee hearing on Wednesday, there were several notable moments specifically. Rep. Halsey's remarks on the importance of the bill, Rep. Shaw's remarks on the opposition to the bill, Rep. Halsey's response to the Shaw's remarks, and Chairman Rudd proceeds to the voice vote. So what it looks like from this is the fact that they came out and tried to make it easier for third parties to run to come up and challenge the major parties. Uh, looks like it was widely supported, well not widely supported, but at least half supported by the members of the council, and yet they still killed it. So I can see why Elaine would be outraged from this as somebody who advocates for third-party access as libertarian proper herself. And yeah, you probably should be. More people need to be in on, in on the process and try to hold others accountable. Otherwise, we're just going to sit here with the same giant douche and turd sandwich every single election going forward which is what they want you to have. That way you're voting against the, less, the more evil candidate. So definitely some stuff to watch with this. Um, you guys should be outraged. If this, got killed, if this still got killed in spite of the fact that the yeas had it, then yeah, we should be outraged for this. It uh, doesn't look like there's a video for this, but... We will see what happens for this, and we will see what happens in Tennessee. Got one here from the Blaze. Just 35% of New Yorkers say Cuomo should resign. Most satisfied with his answers on sexual harassment allegations. From Chris Pandolfo. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo stands publicly accused of sexual harassment by seven women, is under federal investigation for covering up nursing home COVID deaths, and faces an impeachment investigation from state lawmakers. And despite all this, a new poll found barely a third of New York voters want the governor to resign. Only 35% of New Yorkers surveyed said that Governor Cuomo should immediately resign following his sexual harassment and nursing home scandals, according to a new Siena poll. Half of voters surveyed, 50%, said the governor should not resign. A plurality of voters, 48 to 34%, said Cuomo can continue to effectively do his job as governor. Only one-third of voters believe that Cuomo committed sexual harassment. One-quarter of voters say he did not. And a plurality of voters are unsure. Overall, the poll found New Yorkers are satisfied with the way Cuomo has responded to the allegations by a margin of 57% to 32%. And yeah, why are we even paying attention to this? 
They keep talking about the groping, the kissing, the sexual harassment. None of which I think could stand up in court at this point, given what we have coming forward with evidence. Everything that we see is circumstantial at this point. Let's talk about the nursing home. Let's talk about the 15,000 seniors. And while we're at it, let's talk about Whitmer. Whitmer's got to be sitting over there shaking in her boots. And I know that we saw uh, the one woman last week who claimed that this whole thing was a right-wing conspiracy to try and get Cuomo ousted so that they could put, install a Republican governor who could pardon Trump. Yes, that was an actual tweet that happened. I would actually point more to this being a Democrat cover-up here because Whitmer's sitting over in Michigan shaking in her boots, scared to death over the fact that they're going to investigate the nursing home thing, and she just got a subpoena. We talked about that yesterday on both shows. She just got a subpoena handed to her. I'm sorry, she didn't get it handed to her yet, but there's talking about throwing a subpoena at her for what she did with nursing homes in Michigan. So, there may be a plot to this, but I don't think it's coming with the express intent of trying to get Trump pardoned, especially in deep blue New York. Under an impeachment, you are not going to get a Republican governor in New York. It's just not going to happen. All right, let's see from the Daily Wire, another one from Pisaki. Saki on the message Biden sends by not calling for Cuomo to resign. Our objective is the pandemic. From Daily Wire News. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki dodged questions during Monday's press briefing about New York Governor Andy Cuomo and why President Joe Biden won't call on Cuomo to resign amid multiple scandals that are facing the governor. Let's see if there's video. There is no video on this one. The president is the head of the Democratic Party. What message is he sending by not calling on the New York governor to resign? A reporter asked, tomorrow's the usual weekly call with governors. Governor Cuomo is still the head of the National Governors Association. He usually attends. Is he still welcome at the White House committee call? Saki responded to the administration, or that the administration rather, finds all the new developments troubling and hard to read, adding, every woman who steps forward needs to be treated with dignity and respect. Saki continued, the New York AG is pursuing a course, an independent investigation against Governor Cuomo that is appropriate. The president believes that's appropriate, as does the vice president. The investigation needs to be both quick and thorough, consistent with how serious the allegations are. Of course, our objective, though, here continues to be to get the COVID pandemic under control, and we don't want the people of New York or any state to be impacted negatively. We will continue to work with a range of governors, including Governor Cuomo, who I would expect would join the call tomorrow. We will leave that up to him, but in order to continue to coordinate getting the pandemic under control and economic assistance out the door. Look, whether or not Cuomo resigns or is forced out of office is between now him and the people of New York State. The AG's office and lawmakers will conduct the impeachment as necessary, and I believe if it's well, if it's like the recall election in Wisconsin, the people will still get a vote as to whether or not to remove him. But right now, if it was me, and I was the head of the Democratic Party, looking at the Governors Association coming forward, I would already be calling for Cuomo to step down from the head of the Governors Association. Whether or not he remains governor, that's between him and the people of New York. 
But as far as the Governor's Association, I would probably be looking at him and say, Andy, yeah, you got to take a back seat for this. We, we can't have you heading up this organization right now. Just sit down. Deal with what you got going on. We'll talk about this later. And it is a little bit funny that they're sitting here trying to hide behind the COVID thing. Because we're working on getting COVID finished here. Meanwhile, Andy Cuomo is the guy who killed 15,000 seniors in the nursing home. But that's what we see for that. All right, from Fox News. It's going to autoplay on me. Go away, autoplay. Nobody likes you. All right. L.A. County judge authorizes cutting off restaurants' electricity for trying to survive the pandemic. From Bradford Betts. Los Angeles residents have been given the green light to resume indoor dining on Monday, but one restaurant has been given a notice that its power will be shut off. Why? Because the owner kept the lights on during the pandemic to survive. A Los Angeles County judge on Friday authorized the city of Burbank to cut off electricity to a restaurant that has stayed open in defiance of court order issued earlier this week. The L.A. Superior Court issued a temporary restraining order against Tin Horn Flats on Monday, March 8th, requiring that the restaurant close and not open without a county health permit and a city conditional use permit, the city of Burbank said in a statement. The restaurant remained open, despite the order, and on Friday, the court authorized the city to cut off their electricity after giving a 24-hour notice. The city said that the court did not provide permission to padlock the restaurant's doors, but continues to reserve such a remedy as a last resort. The city says it will return to the court for further orders and enforcement of Tin Horn Flats still refuses to close. The city also said it took civil action against Tin Horn Flats after the restaurant broke the state and local in-person dining ban that was issued in December. In late February, the city adopted a resolution to make or revoke rather the conditional use permit for Tin Horn Flats for allegedly violating the Los Angeles County Health Officer orders in a manner which endangers the public health, safety, and welfare and creates a public nuisance. A hearing on a preliminary injunction is scheduled for March 26th. At the hearing, the judge could continue the closure order and further orders during that period while the litigation is pending. So, definitely, definitely something to watch for. And I mean, I find it ironic that they call this restaurant Tin Horn, and yet the Tin Horn dictator of Los Angeles County is saying, Nope, shut him down. Cut that electricity off. Hey, you know what? We opened everybody else back up, but these guys decided that they were going to stay open during the pandemic. Cut them off. Shut them down. All I have to say with that is throw another taxpayer out of your state. Because if it was me and the city came out and said, we're, uh, we're shutting down your electricity and you're not allowed to open back up, I would be looking at property in Arizona real fucking quick or texas or wyoming or somewhere that isn't going to abuse the shit out of me for wanting to keep my business afloat all right let's keep going here 
From the blaze, autistic four-year-old Arkansas boy kicked off flight for not wearing a mask despite doctor's note. From Breck Dumas. A four-year-old Arkansas boy with autism was booted from a Spirit Airlines flight on Monday for not wearing a mask, despite having a doctor's note that the airline had accepted on the flight to their destination. The experience left little Carter Kimball devastated, his mother said. KTHV-TV spoke with Callie Kimball, who told the outlet that her husband and son, Carter, were kicked off their return flight by a Dallas after visiting family in Las Vegas. Callie explained that she and her husband have flown multiple times with Carter, who is severely autistic and nonverbal, and who loves airplanes. Carter's physician supplied them with a letter while, uh, to carry while traveling that explains that Carter is exempt from mask mandates because of his disability, according to Callie. When Carter wears a mask, it's, he starts to freak out, holds his breath, and will harm himself. <clears throat> she said that the Little Rock family has always flown on Spirit Airlines and never had a problem until Monday. When an employee of the airline informed them once they were boarded that autism's not a disability and that he has to wear a mask or he has to get off the plane. To make matters worse, while Carter and his father were kicked off, the airline would not allow Carter's babysitter, who was traveling with them, to help Carter to deboard the airplane with them. Stranded in Dallas, the father and son were able to catch a flight home from American Airlines for $1,000 out of pocket, and America uh, accepted Carter's medical note, but the Kimball family is so far still out of the money for the Spirit return flight they were thrown off of, and the airline has not answered the request for a refund. So, we're out all of our flights, a thousand bucks, and we have a son who's just distraught now that he, like, threw all of his airplanes down, the mother told KTHB. Carter's not the first young autistic child to have trouble with Spirit Airlines. Last September, a Chicago family said the airline sent them a letter banning a three-year-old, Sebastian Lewis, after he kept removing his mask on the return flight home. I remember that one. During a layover, the family says Spirit employees made the entire plane deboard and filed a police report against the family. According to WFLD-TV, Spirit argued that the family was using profanity and being uncooperative. So, yeah, this is getting just a touch out of hand. We saw the bank thing, which if you do business with Bank of America anymore, for any reason whatsoever, I'm sorry, you're a little bit out of your mind because they clearly don't care about you. And then Spirit Airlines as well. They're starting to see this and... I've never even heard of Spirit Airlines, to be completely honest. The couple times that I have flown, it's been Southwest, but I know that there's America and there's United and everything else here. What even is Spirit Airlines? I, why, why have I never heard of them? I don't know, but if they're going to continually do this over and over again, then yeah, it may be time to not give them your business either. All right, let's keep going. From Fox 13 out of Memphis, with a lot of pop-ups. FBI, Nashville bombing was an intentional act meant to end bombers' own life. From Fox13Memphis.com news staff. The FBI, along with other agencies, has concluded a large portion of an investigation into the bombing in downtown Nashville. The bombing happened on December 25, 2020, around 6.30 a.m., Following the explosion, the FBI worked closely with multiple law enforcement partners to investigate. Over 3,000 pounds of evidence was recovered from the blast site, according to a release from the FBI. The FBI combed through more than 2,500 tips and conducted over 250 interviews. 
The investigation found that Anthony Quinn Warner of Antioch, Tennessee, was acting alone, built and ultimately detonated the vehicle born improvised explosive device. The release said his actions were not related to terrorism. An investigative team tried to determine why Warner built and detonated his device in downtown Nashville. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, based in Quantico, Virginia, further assisted the local investigative team in answering this question. Analysis of the information and evidence revealed that Warner's detonation of the explosive was an intentional act to end his own life, driven in part by life stressors. According to the release, those stressors included paranoia, long-held beliefs adopted from several eccentric conspiracy theories, and the loss of stabilizing anchors and deteriorating interpersonal relationships. Warner chose the location and timing of the bombing so it would be impactful, the release said, while minimizing the likelihood of causing undue injury. The FBI's analysis did not reveal indications of a broader ideological move to use violence to bring about social or political change, nor does it reveal indications of a specific personal grievance focused on individuals or entities in and around the location of the explosion. Boy, I have a lot more questions than I did before I read this article. Boy, oh boy, do I have a lot more questions at this point, because this is, this is bullshit. They have no idea, and they're pretty well admitting at this point they have no idea. This is like the laziest reporting that I've ever seen coming out of a news outlet and subsequently the FBI as well because all I can see this if the dude was gonna off himself why not doing it in Antioch Tennessee why did he what that's the hardest part for me is why did he go to downtown Nashville if he had no political agenda why did he go into one of the most public places in this nation to do it I have so many more questions after reading this. And from what I can see here, all I can see is the fact that the FBI looked at this and said, well, we can't figure this out, so we're just gonna call it a day and, hey, I wonder if they have Hot Pockets in the break room. Well, it was just suicide, don't worry about it. Don't worry about anything else here. Oh, I have so many more questions about this. So many more questions about this. But that's what we're getting from there. There was a tweet that came along with this, though, that I wanted to put on. So the FBI releases, the FBI and our partners have determined that Anthony Quinn Warner, driven by life stressors, built the bomb that detonated in Nashville on December 25th, 2020. Learn more about the investigation at, and then they give the link, but one of the reply tweets that came from this, aren't most bomb makers driven by life stressors? Quinn must be white, and y'all are doing the mental illness excuse thing. So, that's what they're going to come off of this. And, of course, Janet J. Eiler has Black Lives Matter yeah, right in the profile. All right, got to do a little bit of foreign stuff. Looks like this one's got to load for a little bit here. From India Blooms. Oil facility in Syria's Aleppo province come under rocket attacks, reports. An attack occurred late on Sunday night in the Al Hamran village where oil tanker trucks and facilities for the initial processing of oil belonging to Turkey-backed forces are located, the newspaper said, citing local sources. The resulting fire and explosions led to injury of several members of the pro-Turkish armed groups and workers of the makeshift oil facilities. According to Al-Watan, one week ago, 
a similar attack in the same area left no less than 200 tanker trucks with Syrian oil burnt down. The newspaper said the stolen oil was processed and then sold by Turkey-backed groups in Syria. According to the Andolu News Agency, the Turkish Defense Ministry said that the Sunday rocket attack was launched from the Syrian Kuwir's Air Base in the Aleppo Governorate. The rockets hit the cities of Jarabulus and Al-Bab, which are under Turkish control. The Turkish Defense Minister, uh, Ministry rather, informed Russia of the necessity to prevent such attacks. In the future, Andulo said. Russia, Turkey, and Iran are the ceasefire guarantors in a war-torn Syria. Russia regularly conducts humanitarian operations across the country and helps Damascus provide safe passage for the return of Syrian refugees. It's, it's so weird right now. There's a lot more fighting going on in the Middle East over oil. And I do have to wonder right now if this is going to cause gas prices to go back up again. Uh, as of right now, there's no real clear evidence as to who was the one that conducted this. So something else to watch for with this. But, you know, this is probably not too far either from where we just dropped the bomb in Syria. Talking about this and this is, this area is getting tense once again. Something to watch for and something to see if we possibly get pulled back into another foreign theater. All right, let's read from Fox News. Columbia University hosting six separate graduation ceremonies based on income level, race, and ethnicities. From Sam Dorman. Columbia University is planning to hold six additional graduation ceremonies for students according to their race and other aspects of how they identify. And New Yorkers see no problem with this. The New York City Schools website details graduation ceremonies for Native, Asian, Lat Latinx, and Black students taking place for Columbia College, Columbia Engineering General Studies, and Barnard College for the end of April. Another dubbed FLI graduation is the first-generation or low-income community. The school also hosts a lavender graduation for the LGBTQIAPPRFG7L, I don't know, community. Due to the coronavirus restrictions, the ceremonies will take place online. It's unclear when the separate ceremonies were announced, but Sunday was the deadline for nominating individuals in Columbia College, Columbia Engineering, and General Studies for the Multicultural Affairs Graduation Cords. Does this seem a little racist to you? Because this seems a little bit racist to me. Columbia University did not immediately respond to Fox News' request for comment, and it's unclear whether the ceremonies would necessarily exclude individuals of other races or backgrounds. The university is also hosting what appears to be more general commencement ceremony on April 30th. Last month, Young America's Foundation flagged a whites-only caucus event scheduled to take place at Elon University. It was intended to give white people a space to learn about and process their awareness of and complicity in unjust systems without harming their friends of color, according to an email distributed by the university. And nobody sees a problem with this. That's what gets me. It's not the fact that they're doing it. It's the fact that nobody sees a problem with this. In fact, they're being praised for being so brave, so wonderful. And here we see 
And like, this this just screams racism to me. It just does. But nobody's going to say a word about it. All right, I got one more here for you guys. A little bit of good news to end before we go and do Twitter trending here. This came to me via Fritz from FritzCast over on Twitter. Toys R Us is coming back again. New owner plans to open stores in North America. From J. Kim Murphy over at IGN. Toys R Us is looking to mount another comeback. The retail chain is planning to open stores in North America, again under the new ownership of WHP Global, a New York-based brand management company. WHP announced Monday in a press release that has uh, that it has acquired rather a controlling interest in True Kids, the parent company of Toys R Us, Babies R Us, and Geoffrey the Giraffe Brands. I don't know why I said Geoffrey. It's Jeffrey. Jeffrey the Giraffe Brands. We're in the brand business, and Toys R Us is the single most credible, trusted, and beloved toy brand in the world. WHP chairman and CEO Yehuda Schmiedman said. We're coming off a year where toys are just on fire, and Toys R Us, the U.S., is really a blank canvas. Schmidman laid out plans for Toys R Us stores to reopen in North America sometime ahead of this coming holiday season. These locations could take the form of flagships, pop-ups, airport shops, or mini-stores within other retailers, according to the company's early plans. It's actually not a bad idea. Just to do, instead of having full brick-and-mortar stores like they used to, just having little kiosks and mini-stores in, in other retail, that's... That's actually kind of brilliant. Toys R Us originally closed its 700 final stores in North America in June 2018, nine months after the retailer fired, uh, filed for Chapter 11. Though their presence has diminished domestically, Toys R Us and Babies R Us together still have about 900 branded stores across 25 countries worldwide. WHP claims that the Toys R Us brand generates more than $2 billion in refail, uh, retail sales. So, Toys R Us is coming back. Possibly looking completely different than what we saw before, but it's coming back, which I'm kind of excited for. You know, I want to have kids one day. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I do want to have kids at some point, so. And that was the most trusted name in toys for me when I was a kid. So I'd love to see it come back, but I don't know if it is going to come back in, uh, in a way that we recognize, but definitely still something to come back to. By the way, I, you know, I usually don't address chat through all of this, but I don't see any congratulations like I told you guys to do yesterday. So I just want to uh, remind everybody that we, uh, we've, got some, uh, we've got some congratulations in order for our friend Harvey McLeod here who's in the chat. So huzzahs are in order. Congratulations and the highest of huzzahs for little McLeod. All right, and that's going to be it for the news for me, by the way. And the last thing that we do on Tuesday is Twitter trending. So let's see what is trending for the day. Number one trend of the day, 316 day. The WWE celebrates Stone Cold Steve Austin week on Austin 316 day, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Legends wrestling debut. Three sixteen. Why don't you try reading Austin three sixteen? Yes, today is the sixteenth. I haven't heard Austin three sixteen in probably ten years, but yes, apparently now it's three sixteen day. What is Stone Cold Steve Austin doing even anymore these days? I think the last thing I saw him didn't he have some reality show on MTV before I cut the cord? 
Is he still doing that? I think he has some redneck reality show. That's the last thing I saw him in. But it's 316 day. All right, number two, Yafet Kato. Actor Yafet Kato, best known for his roles in movies Alien, Live and Let Die, and the TV series Homicide Life on the Street, has died at age 81. I don't know who this dude is. Mostly because I've seen like five movies in my life. Well, F's in the chat for Yafet Kato. Absolutely, throw those F's up. Except somebody had to go rest in power, because, of course, why wouldn't he? I guess he was a Bond dude, too, so I've never seen a Bond movie, so that works. Alright, well, F's in the chat for that. Uh, let's see. Janu Smith. That uh, came in here at the beginning. Former Titans tight end Janu Smith reached an agreement with the Patriots on a four-year $50 million deal that includes $31.25 million fully guaranteed. So, hey, the Patriots are getting a new tight end. Any word on the quarterback yet? We don't know. But new tight end for New England. Number four, Hernandez. Barcelona versus Huesca. I don't know what that is. Um, looks like they're talking about Aaron Hernandez with the deal that came for the Patriots. Savi uh, Hernandez is doing something with soccer. Smith and Henry walking to Bill's office after he created the Gronk-Hernandez duo. Gronk and Hernandez offense coming back. Ravens offense scheme with Cam. Bill was tired of losing. Our pets are falling off. So a lot of this more still has to go along with uh, New England, I guess. Is the reason for the trend here. Alright, last one. Number five. I'm going to skip the Tuesday vibe. I'm going to skip the free Galaxy 2 because I'm sure that's going to be a Samsung advertisement. So we'll go with why I don't take selfies as the last one. Why I don't take selfies? Because I can never decide which one. Kitty. Why I don't take selfies? Because my Bella is more photogenic. My friends get jealous because I always look so good. Why I don't take selfies? I don't know why I don't take selfies more often. I really don't. But I'm not a 17-year-old girl either, so. Why I don't take selfies daily. Change takes place slowly, but occasionally selfies are documenting my health journey and both mental and physical. So apparently a trend of people saying why they don't take selfies. I guess. Because my arms are too short. <laughs> I like that one. I'm glad I scrolled down and caught that one right before I got off. All right. Well, that's it. That's what we're going to do for the Twitter trending for the day. So let's get the scene changed up here, and we'll get some music playing, and we'll head on out of here for the day. It's thinking, and we're here. All right. Thanks, everybody, who came by and chatted throughout the day, and thanks, everybody, who 
went and congratulated my friend Harvey on uh, on the Little McLeod that's going to be coming forward as well. Those are some very, very high huzzahs are in order. And glad to see that as well. We will be back here tomorrow for more Contemporary talking about this. And remember, we'll be back here on April 17th, a Saturday, for 24 hours, midnight to midnight. I'm going to start doing some video gaming in the wee hours of the morning, but I want to see if I can schedule some good interviews to go along with that as well. Looking forward to that. We will be finding a charity for suicide prevention. If you have any suggestions, reach out to me over on Twitter. That's at Edsblog Twitter with a one in place of the I. And suggest a uh, charity for me, or you can find me over on the Discord and the Gilded if you're on the YouTube. Those are linked in the description below you. The Discord is also in the description on all the other platforms as well. So reach out to me, see if you can find something. If you can even find a rep for me too someone to talk to we're gonna see if we can we're gonna see if we can get some good money in for these people here i know the generational gap is on board steven's on board i'm gonna see if steven will play us some music while he's uh on screen because he's just got a studio set up so there's gonna be a lot of good stuff here i'm gonna reach out to some other people too to see what we've got but definitely 24 hours of party definitely looking forward to that oh and by the way i wanted to mention one thing before we got off here you probably you guys probably see the arm in the window over there but uh this guy's not getting canceled this guy is staying by my side because the mainstream media is going to try and cancel him. So he's staying by my side at this point. But yes, we will see you all tomorrow for more Contemporary. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.